Jan and I have been watching a series on Netflix called Lost and Stolen Art. And even though the programs talk about lost and stolen art, they're mostly about the artists, the great artists themselves, who they were, their personalities, their quirks, how they lived, what they loved or didn't love, what kind of people they were. And in many cases, you even come to understand some of their eccentricities. In other words, the artists reveal themselves in what they draw and paint. You can study the picture and you know something of who painted it and why it was painted. When you learn about the tortured life of Vincent van Gogh and what he struggled with, and you see the kind of art that he produced during those times, you learn something of van Gogh what he made. You gain a greater appreciation for the masterpieces that he painted. One particular episode in The Lost and Stolen Art, however, was truly disappointing. It was about Leonardo da Vinci, who was Jan's favorite artist. And the program really never got to the core of why he painted the way he did. And, but that wasn't the worst of it. In the reenactments where they showed an actor portraying Leonardo, the actor was painting with his right hand. Anybody know the problem with that? Leonardo was left-handed. He's the most famous left-handed person in the world. Not only was Leonardo left-handed, he could write backwards, upside down, around about. He could draw forward with one hand and write backwards at the same time with the other hand. Now that tells us a lot about Leonardo. But for us, the right-handed Leonardo severely discredited the entire series. If they couldn't get Leonardo right, then what else didn't they get right? Jan started pulling out her art history books about the great artists, and we were looking at pictures and reading about it. And be, before long, we were arguing with the TV set. We only, usually only do that during the news. Jan from the other room in the kitchen, I have to keep turning up the volume because she just, doesn't want to pin there. But uh, for example, they, would, they, they showed this painting that they said was a long lost painting and they said it was by veneer. And we started saying, that, that's not a veneer. What, what are they, they thinking? It was obvious to us that it wasn't. Anybody could tell he didn't paint that, yet the so-called lost veneer recently sold for millions of dollars. We had a long argument with the TV over a mere painting that they called Girl with a Pearl Earring. And it showed this beautiful girl with a turban and she had this earring hanging off her, her left ear. And it was, looked to be about that long and about that big around and it was pear-shaped. And it didn't look like a pearl at all. It looked like something completely. And they'd done this whole thing about how technical and how precise Vermeer was in his paintings. And they're, they're, they're wonderful. And you go, that can't be a pearl. And to me, it looked like it was hammered metal, which uh, I looked in some, on the internet. And they, they said it looked to most people like it was hammered tin. That's why historically, the, the picture is known as girl with a turban. Everybody can agree that she's wearing a turban. The point is, if you're going to argue with the TV set or with anybody else, argue over how you know who painted it, why it was made, and what you know of the maker. That's the Apostle Paul's main point in Romans chapter 1 in, in these verses this morning, beginning at verse 18. What do we know about the creator God, the creator of the universe? Why he made what he did, and why is sinful humanity suppressing the truth about him, and why is it worth debating? Why is it worth arguing about? Beginning at verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, Paul gives us two ways in which God reveals himself to humanity. 
He reveals himself. He makes himself known by his wrath, by his wrath against all ungodliness, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then secondly, God reveals himself in everything that he has made, which leads to the logical conclusion that no one is without excuse, which today is one of the most highly contested truths contained in the Bible. I heard it as a little kid. How can God allow somebody in deepest, darkest Africa to go to hell when they never heard and those kind of things? It's been around for a while. Human beings, sinful human beings, don't want to come to grips with the fact that they are guilty. They are without excuse. But inside, everybody knows that they are. So please turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 again. The first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul tells us in verse 18 where God directs his wrath, and we spent a lot of time on wrath last week, how he reveals himself by his wrath. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. The idea here is that people hold on to their sins, and at the same time, they suppress the truth. It's like with one hand, they won't let go of their sins. At the other hand, they keep pushing down the truth. They hold down the truth so they can pursue their sins. They hold down the truth so they can hold on to their sins. And it's ungodly. It's, it says, Paul says they do it with ungodliness. It's ungodly because it shows a lack of reverence for God. They don't revere God. There is no fear of God before their eyes, Paul will say in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, quoting the 36th Psalm. In reality, it's an attempt to get rid of God. And since that is impossible to get rid of God, it becomes the determination to live as though somebody actually succeeded in getting rid of God. And they think they're getting away with it. They hold down the fact that God exists and has nothing to do with them and how they live, thinking that they can live however they want, hold on to their sin. And the Bible says that's ungodliness. And secondly, says Paul, they also suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So you got unrighteousness and ungodly, two parts of sin. While ungodliness is lack of reverence for God, the vertical relationship, lack of reverence for him, Unrighteousness has to do with how we live with others, our horizontal relationships. The greatest commandment, says Jesus, is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and strength. The vertical relationship. Jesus said the second greatest commandment is like unto it, which is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. The horizontal relationship. This is where unrighteousness comes in. In the horizontal relationship, how we live in our relationship to others. It's not just that people do wrong, even though they know better, but they have made what's called an a priori decision. They have made a decision up front, not going to change. They have made that decision to live for themselves rather than live for God and others. And therefore, they stifle, deliberately stifle, any truth that challenges their own self-centeredness. Now, ungodliness and unrighteousness are really two different aspects of sin, and Paul put them in this order, beginning with ungodliness and then unrighteousness, for a particular reason. Ungodliness is always the root of sin. 
Our sin against God is ungodliness, and unrighteousness flows out of it as we live in this world with others. Sin always begins with ungodliness, our disobedience to God, and then unrighteousness flows from it. Our first and basic problem is that we disregard and we disobey God, and this always leads to our sins against one another. Ungodliness, remember, was the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Eden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, this led to separation from God. This led to alienation between them and between God and eventually led to the sin that caused Cain to murder his brother Abel. All unrighteousness is an inevitable result of ungodliness. And why is the wrath of God being poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness? Verse 19 again, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Here is where we come to the main theme this morning, the God everybody knows about. The God everybody knows about. And we come in verse 20 to the God who reveals himself in creation. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, for they are without excuse. In other words, the God who himself is invisible and unknowable has made himself both visible and knowable through what he has made. The creation, all that God has created is the visible disclosure of the invisible God, an intelligible disclosure of the otherwise unknown God. Just as artists reveal who they are and what they draw, what they paint, what they sculpt, so the divine artisan, the creator God, has revealed himself in his creation. God made it evident to them, so they are without excuse. No one is going to spend eternity without God because they didn't know about God. God would never send anybody to hell who didn't have an opportunity to know him. God is a God of justice. God is a God of, of equity. Tertullian was the early church father who lived in the, the 3rd century, and he had much to say about this conviction. He was what we call one of the first apologists. The Greek word, not to apologize for Christianity, but an apologist. The word apology in the Greek means to defend, to stand as in a court of law and defend. And so he was a great defender of the faith in the Roman Empire that was everything against the faith at the time. And he, said, he showed that God can be revealed in creation. And he says, speaking of Moses writing the book of, of Genesis, it was not the pen of Moses that initiated the knowledge of the Creator. The vast majority of mankind, though they had never heard the name of Moses to say nothing about his book, know the God of Moses nonetheless. And nature, he said, is the teacher and the soul is the pupil. I, I just love that. Nature is the teacher and the soul is the pupil. And then he asked rhetorically, one flower of a hedge by itself, I think, and I do not say a flower of the meadow. One shell of any sea you like, and I do not say a pearl from the Red Sea. One feather of a myrrh flower, to say nothing of a peacock. Will they speak to you of a creator? If I offer you a rose, will you scorn its, its maker? 
In other words, creation manifests God. And he was making this argument to the Romans who were trying to deny the God of Isaac, Jacob, and Israel. And even for those who appear unable to perceive that creation, there is the manifestation of God within them. There's that great story about Helen Keller. Remember here, her? I don't know if they talk much about Helen Keller anymore, but we grew up in school, and, and uh, she'd be shown it on the, the newsreels and, and on TV and thing. What a wonder, wonderful woman, but she was born deaf, mute, and blind. And if you've ever seen, what is the name of it? Was the miracle worker? Was that it or something like that? The, the great story about her. She had absolutely no capacity to communicate until Ann Sullivan spent hours upon hours and days upon days and months upon months to unlock that communication. She would put Helen's uh, hands under the water and turn on the pump and then she would do all that stuff with her hands to say that's water and it just took months and months and years and years until she could fully communicate and eventually she could talk in, in a very clear way. And when Anne attempted to tell Helen Keller about God, Helen's response was, I already know about him. I just didn't know his name. I'm going to make what might be a startling statement, and I'm going to explain it and show you how tremendous it is. The statement is this. Thanks to modern science, the revelation of God is just getting better and better. It's getting greater and greater. I already see you shaking your head. Maybe I won't have to explain it. We can go say the benediction and go home. The truth about his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature are becoming more and more clearly seen. We don't need to fear science because it's doing a great service for God and his creation. So to understand this, let me take you back to the ancient world with what could be seen of creation way back when before any technology, before any industry, uh, what the, the, the anthropologists would say, back to the Iron Age, as it were. David the psalmist declared in the first verse of the 19th Psalm, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. David the sheep herder looked up into the sky as he was tending sheep and maybe laying out in that grass as Juby was, being crazy happy, and looking at those stars and thinking, this is just inc wonderful, incredible. All these stars, nobody can count. Uh, no man could have done that. It had to be the work of God. What a great work. It's glorious. And it brought him to praise to God over and over and over again in the Psalms. No one in David's time would attribute all of that to an accident of nature. How stupid could you get? <laughs> when we used to take family trips in the car and we'd see the beautiful mountains and some great scene or a sunset, uh, we would say, nice touch, God. Nice touch. For the living God who made all things, as Paul proclaimed to his pagan audience in Lystra, has not left himself without a testimony, but has shown his kindness to the human race by his gifts of rain and crops, abundant food, and overflowing joy. And here's the cool thing about science. Now what we can see, thanks to science, is not limited to what the human eye can see. Now we have the Hubble Telescope. I don't know, have they decommissioned that yet? I know they were talking about it. But 
We peer great distances into space and we can see for light years. What is a light year? Actually, it's a a measurement of, of distance. It's the distance that light travels in a year. We can see galaxies, which, according to the ancients, if they, ancients, if they had better eyesight than I did, they would think that's just a blurry star. Right now, everything's a blurry star up there for me. But the, the galaxy is tens of millions of stars in one galaxy. Now, those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness will take you that it'd take, as Carl was saying, billions and billions of years. How would they say it's billions and billions of years? Because that's how long they say it would take for that farthest star for the light to reach Earth. And so every time they discover a new star out there far away, first star to the right or whatever it is, then they have to revise what they say is the age of the universe. But the truth is, the more clearly we see into distant space, the more we understand and know God who said, let there be light. The God who knows the expanse of the universe, only he knows when light happened all at once at the command of his voice. And the Bible also says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, the older you get, the more you wonder about that. (laughs) But David the psalmist said that when David wasn't looking up into the stars and into the heavens and praising God... He gave thought to his own body, the human body. The 119th Psalm, the 14th verse says, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. There it is. It's it's evident with him. Uh, We had a surgeon in our church in, in Elko and he would say, I just don't understand. You know, every time I peer into the human body, I just see God's hand all over it. Nothing else explains this. David knew it well because God had made it evident within him. He looked at the stars. Yep, God did that. Praise him. He looked at his own body and said, yep, only God could do that too. Praise the Lord. It's in the innate, in the heart of every man. It's it's the God that everybody knows about. Now these days I'm in between two cataract surgeries. And so I've been given a lot of thought to the human eye lately. David would marvel that he could see it all, that he could see the stars, that he could see his own body, that he could see all the handiwork of of God. How could that be possible? Only God could do that. Well, now we know scientifically how the eye works. We don't know how God did it, and human beings can't reproduce it. But I pulled this off the Internet from a website called Science Made Simple. It said this, Many of us take our vision for granted, but have you ever wondered how this fascinating organ actually works? How do our eyes allow us to see objects as small as a human hair and as far away as the Andromeda galaxy, 2.6 million miles away? It explains, light from the sun or artificial light travels in a straight line, bounces off of objects and into our eyes through the pupil. Yesterday at... uh, at men's breakfast, I saw Floyd keep backing up, backing up. And I go, what is going on here? Is he trying to leave or, or what? And, and finally he said, well, the, light's come, the sunlight's coming in through the, the window and it's reflecting off of the table and, it, and it's glaring into my eyes. That's what, what light does. Here it says, depending on the amount of light, the iris changes the size of the pupil to let more light in. 
This is to prevent damage to the eyes by stopping too much light entering the eye when it is bright and maximizing the amount of light entering the eye when it's dark. The light passes through the lens. The lens focuses the light into the back surface of the eye, the retina. Depending on how far away the object is, our lens needs to change shape to keep the light focused on the retina. The fatter lens bends the light more than a flatter lens. The human eye can change the shape of the lens as we look at far or near objects to keep them in focus. This is called accommodation. When we look at a far object, the light does not need to bend a lot to converge on the retina. So the suspensatory ligaments pull on the lens to make it flat. When we look at a near object, the light has to bend more to converge on the retina. So the suspensatory ligaments pull less, allowing the lens to spring back into a fatter shape. After receiving focus light, the retina transforms this into millions of electrical impulses, which travel to the brain via the optic nerve. The image we receive on the etna is actually upside down. Our brains turn the image around so we don't get confused. Now, in case you're wondering, a cataract is the clouding of the lens, that thing that bends and does that. And so that's why when they replace the lens, because of, on account of your cataract, they'll say you can either be nearsighted or farsighted, and you'll need glasses for, for one another, or in my case, you're probably going to need glasses for both, because my lens isn't going fatter and, and thinner any, anymore. Verse 20 of Romans chapter 1. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. And then verses 21 through 23 explain why they are without excuse. Why the ungodly, why the unrighteous suppress the revelation of God that they know to be true and why God is justified in pouring out his wrath. C.S. Lewis once said, once a person rejects the truth of God's word, he will believe anything. He will believe anything. So true. And that's what we have in verse 21 of Romans chapter 20, or Romans chapter 1, 21st verse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Notice the downward spiral here, the downward progression. They knew God. They knew God, not in the sense of knowing God in salvation, but in knowing God's power, his glory, his invisible attributes can be clearly seen by what has been made. They knew God, but even though they knew God, they willfully, they purposefully do not honor God or give him thanks. Instead, they decide to come up with their own stuff. So they speculate. Well, well, what are the other options? There's got to be other answers for this. How else can things be explained if not God, whom we have rejected, if not the truth, which we have surpassed, that's suppressed, that's not an option, then what? And of course, speculation goes into a merry-go-round of futility. John MacArthur quoted a certain evolutionist that said, I refuse to believe in God, so what other alternatives do I have but evolution? At least the man was honest. He gave clear testimony to the fact that it was not evidence for evolution. 
that led him to disbelief in God. It was his disbelief in God that he had nothing else to believe but in, in evolution. His disbelief in God led him to embrace evolution of which there is absolutely no observable scientific evidence. You'll see that on the film next week, on, in, in the movie. He'll, he'll keep asking, you know, science is observable evidence. What you observe, what's the observable evidence for evolution? And there's not a one, not a thing. No, no, nothing, no evidence. Pastor Stephen Cole, who's in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, talks about they're, they're in a college town, and he has challenged every college student that's come into the doors of his church, give me one piece of evidence for evolution. And in 42 years, not a single college student has come up with one. How foolish is that? That's the downward spiral. Into verse 21, and their foolish heart was darkened. Darkness refers to the lack of light, the lack of understanding, but it also refers to the evil of the human heart. It's a blackened, dark, hardened heart that refuses to see the truth, the light. And what does that speculation get for them? What does it accomplish? Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. David, the psalmist who peered into the heavens and looked at God's creation and wrote in the 53rd Psalm of the first verse, the fool has said in his heart, said in his heart, there is no God. The Greek word for fool is moros. We get the word moron from it, moros. One of my favorite words of all time is the word sophomore. Every kid can't wait to be a sophomore. They hate being a freshman and what? Finally, I'm a sophomore. I have arrived. A sophomore comes from two Greek words, Sophia, which means wisdom, and moros, which means moron or fool. It's a wise fool. <laughs> That's what it means literally. A sophomore is someone who thinks they know the stuff, but they don't. And so they are a wise fool. At least the sophomore doesn't know what he doesn't know. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And the fool is not ignorant. He knows in his heart there's a God, and he willfully chooses. He makes a moral decision to reject God in hopes he can come up with something else, anything else, so he doesn't have to be accountable to God who made him and everything else. Understanding God requires a moral decision, not additional information. God's given all the information that's necessary. It's a moral decision to reject the knowledge of God available in creation and people claim to be wiser than God. And, and so we come to the very bottom or the, the downward spiral, verse 23 of Romans chapter 1. Professor, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawly, crawling creatures. Here's the basis of all idolatry, false images which are worshipped. Every person who has rejected God worships a false image. An image in the form of man or birds or, or animals or the self-worship of, of an image created by one's own hands. Psalm 115, we went there not too long ago, the 115th Psalm, the first verse, describes the foolishness of this. Psalm 115 at verse 1 page 740 in the Bible in the rack. Verse 1 shows us 
you know, we read in Romans, they exchanged the glory of God for, for an image. And here in the 115th Psalm, it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. We're not going to exchange the glory of God for an image, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Now look at the contrast here. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have ears, but they cannot see, or eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, for they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their, with their throat. You know, you walk up to an idol, you knock on its head, and what? Nothing home. Nobody's there. It's the ultimate airhead. And yet people, millions and billions of people in our world worship false idols. The danger, Paul will say, is that demons come and impersonate those idols and keep people in darkness and blindness. The idol worship is actually demon worship. But here in verse 8 is the, the somber warning. Those who make them will become what? Like them. Everyone who trusts in them. The fastest way to be an airhead is to be an idol worshiper. The fastest way to be a fool is to be an idol worshiper. It's a truism. It's true of every human being. We become like what we worship. If we worship Jesus Christ, what? We become more and more like Jesus Christ. Pastor Jack Hayford wrote, Worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one who is worshipped. That is true. We see a similar thing on a different level with sports heroes and, and celebrities, don't we? Our kids like to be like whoever or whatever they idolize. They dress like them. They act like them. Remember that commercial with Michael Jordan, the great basketball player? Uh, my, my nephew has a signed picture by Michael Jordan, that one, that famous picture where he launches from the free throw line and he's in the air and he dunks the ball into the basket from the free throw line. It's an incredible, Air Jordan is what they called the, the shoes he was selling and, and they said, want to be like Mike? And they had all these kids that wanted to be like Mike. It's, it's an incredible thing, but we tend to be like what we worship, what we idolize. But idol worship doesn't account for all idolatry, does it? It's not all false images and idols and such. So A.W. Tozer added, Men who refuse to worship the true God now worship themselves with tender devotion, self-deification. Ultimately, the rejection of God, not honoring and glorifying God, not giving him thanks, leads to the deification of self. All rejection of God, all false worship really is the deification of self. Self-deification makes one's self to be one's own God. I've told this story before, the, the people, uh, the anthropologists who found a primitive tribe in South America. It was about 20, 25 people at the most of this tribe that have never seen anything of the outside world. And they thought they were the only human beings in, in the world. That's how isolated they were. And uh, they were still in the Stone Age living that way, and, and, uh, but they'd also carved these little miniature 
idols about this tall in the shape of a human being, and uh, they worship these little wooden idols. And, and they're trying to figure out why. And, and one of the things that they, they noticed that uh, every one of the little idols had one foot shorter than the other, one leg shorter than the other. And as they studied the tribe further, they found out that everybody in the tribe had a, uh, a defect, a natural defect of which they all had one leg shorter than the other. They were worshiping little gold or little wooden idols made in their own image. It's still the worship of self. It lies at the heart of human rebellion. End of story, not by a long shot. God created man in his image. Remember that from the book of Genesis? The divine artisan stamped his image into the soul of humankind so that his creation, humankind, would reflect his glory, the glory of the divine artisan, their creator. And God had a noble purpose in mind when he created humankind. It was distinctly the will of God that men and women Everyone that he created would desire fellowship with him above all else. And God's plan is to be a perfect fellowship based on adoring worship of the creator and sustainer of all things. The triune God had said with pleasure, let us make man in our image. Then stooping down, God took up clay. He shaped it and he formed man and blew the breath of life into his nostrils and man became a living soul. And the creator asked the man to look around him, look at the rest of creation, look at all the animal world. This is all yours. I am all yours. Now I want you to name all the animals. Why? Well, why did God tell Adam to name all the animals? Because God knew that as, animal, as, as Adam looked at each one of those created animals by God, that he would see something of the creator. He would learn something new about God by what he is, is created. You're going to learn something more about me in every animal that you name, even if it's such a thing as a duck-bill platypus. I've often wondered, I wonder what Adam called that in the Hebrew. That's got to be a great, great question to ask when I get, get to heaven. And God said, in effect, I will look at you and when I see your face, because I created you in my own image, you will be a reflection of my image. That is your end. The Westminster Confession says the chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. God said, you were created to worship me. You were created to glorify me and have me as your God forever. But when God withdrew just for a moment, the serpent called Satan poisoned the man and his bride. They sinned against God. They rejected God. Is that the final end? Is that all there is? End of story? The good news is that God didn't write us off. God did not give up on us. Rather, God said, I'm going after them. I still want them. I still want them to be a mirror in which I can Look and see my glory. I still want to be adored by these people. I still want my people to glorify me. I still want my people to enjoy me forever. A.W. Tozer put it this way. Yes, worship of the loving God is man's whole reason for existence. That is why we were born, and that's why we were born again from above. That's why we were created, and that's why we have been recreated. That is why there was a genesis at the beginning, and that's why there is a regenerous, regenesis called re 
generation. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, we are what? Born again. We are born again of the Spirit. We are renewed and begin to be renewed unto the very image of Jesus Christ. And we start to discover and find out not only why we were created to begin with, but why we were born again in the Spirit and why God is remaking us and reshaping us on a daily basis more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Do you know, you're a little bit more like Christ than you were an hour ago. Have you ever thought of that? Because you've learned something of our great God during this time. And he, if you are in him and you know him as your savior, you are more like Christ now than you were just a few minutes ago. So why would anybody want to miss this? But that's probably a whole other story. So let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for not giving up on us, not giving up on your creation but writing it in the skies, as it were, and, and in our hearts, Lord, constantly through your Holy Spirit, calling us back to you. We thank you that we've had this opportunity this morning to give you praise for the, for the beauty of the earth and those wonderful songs that we have sung this morning. And Father, we will continue to praise you with our lips and with our lives, even as we go from this place this morning. And we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.